Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, Exodus chapter 17, Exodus 17, When we get to the end of, I guess, the start of Exodus 19, we're going to take a break from the book of Exodus for a while. Uh, just some other things to teach on. The, bo- the Bible is a large book. It contains a lot of material. Um, but just to take a rest from that, to focus on some other teaching, uh, and also so that I can try and wrap my head around how to actually work through the second half of Exodus. Because it's a lot of, well, if you've ever read it, the second half of Exodus is, you know, I'm struggling to put words to it. It's hard to work through. So, um, moreover, just some things we want to also teach through uh, as a church, been praying on and want to teach on. So, uh, looking forward to that. So, we're going to go through the rest of 17 today, and we're going to work through chapter 18 to chapter 19, verse, I don't know, like 2 or 3 or something. We're going to call it there as the first half of Exodus and focus on some other things for a little while. And then we'll return to Exodus because Exodus is one of five books. It's meant for us to read the whole thing, not just the stuff that is known, not just the stuff that is fun to read, but also that stuff that is very difficult to read. Today we are in Exodus chapter 17, uh, and this is, I don't know, maybe it is a difficult passage. I, as I studied it, the more and more, it just, there was a lot that kept coming out to me, so I'm happy to open this with you this morning. Israel is in the wilderness. They're traveling from the Red Sea. They're working their way to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, uh, where they will worship and serve God, you'll remember that this is why God has delivered them. He has made them his people. He has delivered them from Exodus. He is leading them through the wilderness to the mountain to worship, to serve him. I will be your God. You will be my people. God is creating a nation on the earth. And in our American mindset, we struggle in understanding the nation that God is creating. Because it is far more than just a people on this earth. It is an eternal kingdom. It is an eternal nation. Though it is being visually seen in an actual, physical, ethnical people, the people of God is so much broader than just the Israelites that we read about in the book of Exodus. They are being brought to the mountain of God where they will worship the God who has delivered, the God who has redeemed, and the God who will dwell with them. However, as he goes and as he leads his people, we've seen through Exodus 15, 16, and most of 17 at this point, God keeps leading them to very difficult places. They're not finding themselves anywhere by chance. It's not that they are randomly finding these hard places. God is leading his people in order to strengthen their faith and their confidence in him. In Exodus 15, there was bad water. In Exodus 16, there was uh, no food. In Exodus 17, there was no water. Now, all of a sudden, after the people have been grumbling and they have been quarreling, where they have been discontent with their leadership, where they have had a lack of faith in God, now comes difficulty from outside of the people of Israel. So it's not bad enough that they've had so much struggle on their own inside as a nation. Now there is trouble coming at them from the outside. Would you read with me? Exodus chapter 17, let's read verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, thankful to sing your praise and to come before you in prayer. And again, once more, to now turn our attention, Father, to your word. And I pray that you would speak to us. Father, we accept your word as received. It is your word, the word of God. And we accept that this morning and pray, Father, that as we examine it, your truth would come alive to our lives. Father, that we would follow you in a greater way because of what we see in your word today. Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that sinners would be humbled to repentance and to salvation. I pray, Father, that the holiness of your people would be promoted and that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A hand upon the throne is what I called the sermon today. Right there out of the end of, the cha- of this chapter, verse 16, a hand upon the throne I hope to communicate to you today, if it's possible, through this text for us to see the Christian life in a greater and perhaps more clear context. Through what we just read, I pray that you will see and grasp at and begin living the Christian life in a greater way, perhaps more clearly I was excited when I opened Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. You want to know why? Because for the first time since Exodus chapter 1, we are meeting new characters. And I was excited about that. No longer Egyptians, no longer Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are still there. But did you notice there are three new figures in the Old Testament narrative that Moses introduces us to? Amalek, Joshua, and her. So I'm going to spend perhaps the balance of this morning and our time together setting up a little bit of historical context for Amalek, Joshua, and her. There's a lot for us to understand about them for this passage to make sense to us. We know Moses, we know Aaron. It says at the start of verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with them. I want to draw our attention to the fact that as Moses writes this, He wrote about not having water, and then they have water, and then Amalek came and fought with Israel. We don't know when Amalek came. Did they have time to rest? Did they not have time to rest? We remember that at Rephidim, they were to be finding a place of rest, but there was no water. So the place that God had led them to, where they found no water, where they were intending to rest, there was no water, and God provided that. Out of the rock, they found water. The people rested. How long? We don't know. They quarreled with God. They quarreled with Moses. They almost stoned him. And then Amalek came and fought with Israel. I am hoping you're learning the, the precept is the only word I can say, but the, the, the fundamental aspect of the Bible, that the Bible is its greatest teacher of itself. We look to the scripture to understand the Bible more. And God, by his spirit in us through faith in Christ, helps us to understand what we are reading. Now, in the Old Testament, there's so much history entangled that can be difficult. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 and 18 sheds a little bit more light on this. The entire book of Deuteronomy is one speech by Moses before he dies. It's not broken up over a series and span of time and days and weeks. He makes one speech about the people going into the promised land, and then he dies. That's all of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 and 18, Moses reminds the people, he says, remember when you came up out of Egypt that Amalek came, Moses' words, and cut off your tail. So Deuteronomy gives us a little bit of a glimpse as to what's happening here when Amalek comes and fights against them, cut off their tail, attacked them from behind, did not face them on the field of battle, which even still, I guess not so much today because warfare has changed so much, but in olden times and not that long ago for us, you faced your opponent on the battlefield. And even in more ancient times, there may have been a delegation that met halfway. What are the terms of this engagement? Who's off limits for us to attack? Who, what's going to define the victory? They may come to those terms and then separate and then have at it with one another. Like, what in the world? This is the closest thing we could come to understand. I think I'm kind of convinced of this. A boxing or a wrestling match. 
I think is probably the closest we could come to understanding like ancient warfare. Two sides agreeing to one thing and then engaging in conflict and then separating. Amalek didn't do that here. They agreed to nothing. They attacked them from behind, cut them off. Moses says in Deuteronomy, attacked those who were lagging behind, Moses says. So their victims, as they attack the people, are those who are so worn out they can't keep up. If they're so worn out they can't keep up, then they're exhausted. They have no strength to defend themselves. Amalek comes and attacks from behind the most vulnerable. I think the most striking thing that Deuteronomy says, Moses says, they did not fear God. It was the most striking in, in Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18. That's the most striking line to me. They found you vulnerable. They attacked those who were lagging behind. They did not attack you honorably. They did not fear God. They simply saw an opportunity. Maybe they were guarding a homeland. Maybe they'd heard of the Israelites. We don't want you here because you were there. We're going to solve this problem before it ever happens. They attack them. But that's not the end of the story. The fight continues apparently the next day. This attack is seemingly unprovoked, comes from Israel's first foe, that's important, out of Egypt. Egypt was absolutely a foe, but Israel did nothing to conquer them. God conquered Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness, literally still trying to get to Mount Sinai to worship God. And here comes their first foe out of Egypt, who will become an ongoing enemy for many hundreds of years. I also want to note, before I tell you a little bit more about Amalek, in this entire passage, the silence of the people of God is deafening to me. 8 through 16 the people of Israel said and say and do nothing. And that struck me. Why? Because they were all upset about not having any water. And they were all upset about not having any food. And they were all upset that the water was bitter. And if you remember on the other side of the Red Sea, they were afraid and upset that Pharaoh was going to corner them against the Red Sea and destroy them there. And they had things to say about that. Here comes Amalek attacking from behind. And you notice, like, we've been through Exodus now in the 17th chapter. Moses tells us when the people have something to say. And here in this, in this passage, they say nothing. And their silence is deafening to me. I wonder... Perhaps exhausted, perhaps thankful that they did find water, that God did provide water for them, perhaps they are simply paralyzed in fear as those most vulnerable among them are attacked. doesn't tell us how many lives were lost in the initial attack. It doesn't even tell us how many lives were lost at all. Who's Amalek? Who is this that has come out and fought with Israel? For those Bible students, I just want to remind everyone in the room, when it says, then Amalek, this is not one person came and fought with Israel, another person. This is the sons of Amalek, the descendants of Amalek, came and fought against the descendants of Israel. The ancient Near East being a patriarchal society, people being identified with their fathers, Amalek, the father of these people, they come out and they attack Israel. Who is he? He's first mentioned, for note takers, in Genesis chapter 36, verses 12 and 16. Who he is may be interesting. He's noted in Genesis 36, 12 as the son of Eliphaz, the son of Esau. Amalek, the father of these people, is Esau's grandson. Why is that notable? Because Esau is the twin brother of Jacob, who in Genesis chapter 25 is renamed Israel. I'm sorry, they're born in Genesis 25, and he's renamed in Genesis 35. So then Amalek coming here and attacking Israel is attacking a distant relation. This is a distant form of some kind of cousin. If you gave me enough time, I could probably trace out like first cousin once removed on the mother's side, plus three to the power of, I forget. 
This is family attacking family. Why is family attacking family? Because, Moses reveals later, Amalek did not fear God. They are not family. They are enemies now. Remember that Esau sold his birthright, did not fear God, did not honor God, and as the older son sold his firstborn status to Jacob in a deceptive move, which is hard for us to understand, Israel, Jacob, blesses, uh, Isaac blesses Jacob, and Jacob, Israel, inherits all of the blessing of his father, and Esau gets nothing except he becomes an enemy to his brother. We read about their reconciliation, though Jacob and Esau seem to reconcile. Esau's name means Edom, E-D-O-M, and the Edomites and those people are enemies and oppressors and antagonists of Israel throughout the rest of biblical history. And here we are. Here is one of our first pictures out of Egypt. As soon as they're out of Egypt and in the wilderness, here comes those antagonist, distant family members causing problem for the line of Jacob's children, Jacob's people. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 29, the Amalekites are identified, Amalekites, those of Amalek, they're identified as inhabitants of the Negeb, N-E-G-E-B, the Negeb. This is the lowland or the valley region of the promised land. So the Amalekites live in the land that God is giving to the Israelites. Well, now we understand a little bit more about why the attack happened. Is it unprovoked? No. Where are they coming to? Wait a minute. Grandpa Esau told us that someday Jacob's kids might come back here to take possession of this land. No, 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 no. Ain't no son of Jacob coming here and living on sons of Esau's land, right? Family feud, right? How often? Over and over throughout history. Here come the Amalekites to attack them, identified as the inhabitants of the lowland or the valley region of the promised land. When the Israelites reach the promised land, which you'd have to read in the book of Numbers to see when that finally happens, when they reach the promised land, they are afraid to obey the command of God to go into the land that God has given to them because of its inhabitants of whom they say are the Amalekites. In Numbers 13, they disobey God. They do not go in and take the promised land. And in Numbers 14, here comes the Amalekites out against the people of Israel in battle, and they defeat them. Moses shows us here, though. Notice what it says in Exodus 17, verse 14, toward the end of the verse. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. No matter how much the Amalekites antagonize the people of God. No matter how often they attack the people of God, no matter how much rest the Israelites lose because of the Amalekites, their end will come. In Numbers chapter 14, Numbers 24, verse 20, Balaam of talking donkey fame. I say that because in our Sunday school this morning we were talking about people not believing the Bible. We, we all know people that don't believe the Bible. Like, I, I, don't, I don't believe that a, at all. What are reasons that people don't believe the Bible? Because it tells a story about a donkey talking to a man. That's why. It tells a story about a man swallowed by a large fish who didn't die and was spit out on the shore. That's why people don't believe the Bible. And let's admit it. Those are both ludicrous stories. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, who we know came out of the grave, tells us they both happened. So why do I believe they happened? Because the man who's out of the empty tomb that's empty that no one can prove said they happened. Balaam prophesies in Numbers chapter 24, their end, the Amalekites, is utter destruction. 400 years after, the battle, after this battle in Exodus, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, I have taken note of what Amalek did in opposing Israel when they came up out of Egypt. We should probably write that verse down. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, chapter, chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3, God says, I have noted what they did. Just store that away for a rainy day. God's taking notes of rights and wrongs. I've noted what they did. In opposing, Amal- in opposing Israel, they came out of Egypt. 
In 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3, the Lord orders then King Saul through the prophet Samuel to devote to destruction all that the Amalekites have. Saul's orders are to spare nothing, to spare no one, because God said here in Exodus chapter 17, I will blot out the memory of. There is an uprising that happens apparently after this battle. You'll, Bible students will be aware that in 1 Samuel 15, Saul disobeys God. And because of Saul's disobedience, he's removed from being king. And David, who kills the giant and is this awesome king, becomes king after him. David becomes king, and in 2 Samuel 8, verse 12, the Bible says, David subdued Amalek, and they are never heard from again. The only reason Amalek is talked about is to show they opposed God, they are enemies of God's people, God said, I will execute judgment on them, he does, and they're gone. That's the only lesson that Amalek serves us in the Bible. Pastor, is this actually important to today's message? It's okay if you snicker and think, I was asking myself that question. What does this have to do with anything? Yeah, it's important for two reasons. One, God is not unmerciful. God is not an unmerciful God. And God is just. It's very hard for us to reconcile those two thoughts together, isn't it? God is merciful, but God is just. God gives mercy, but also requires and will have justice. And in a day and age when modern culture just wants to tell you that God is love, we like to erase a lot of these things and not even talk about them. God is not unmerciful and God is just. God doesn't just kill for pleasure. God doesn't take life on a whim. How often are all these thoughts confronted, to, brought to us by people in the world. I don't understand a God who just kills people. I read the book of Judges and he's just killing people all over the place, but wait a second. But God is just and is not unmerciful. If someone is dying at the hand of God, like the Amalekites, there is justice in it. I will blot out from memory all of Amalek. God's justice comes to Amalek. If you were to read 1 Samuel all alone, it's terrible. 1 Samuel chapter 15, in those verses there, the opening verses of the chapter, God says to Saul, destroy them. Men, women, children, sheep, cattle, burn it, melt it, get rid of it. And in our day, and in our world, Skeptics of God and doubters of the Bible want to look at that and say, I can't believe in a God like that. And that is because we alone, let alone them, do not conceive of the holiness of God. God is holy. He will have justice. If people will not worship, he will execute judgment. God is merciful. This is the whole point of Jesus Christ. God does not kill on a whim. He does not kill for pleasure. God executes judgment. When we see God eradicate a people, there is judgment involved. At the ark, there is judgment involved. The Amalekites, there is judgment involved. All of Israel's foes that are subdued, there is judgment involved. When Israel, God's own people, are pulled out of their own land and taken into exile in a foreign land, there is judgment involved. You cannot sin against God and to get away with it. Amalek was not going to get away with being opposed. Is this Esau's fault? Is Amalek being judged because Esau rejected God and rejected all that God had given him and became an enemy of God's people? No, Amalek is wholly responsible in becoming rejectors also of God and not following him and attacking his people. They are an adulterous people. You can read their history. They're awful people throughout the Old Testament and God brings judgment on them. Not because they're awful. How many awful people do we know that we want to see saved? Man, desperately. How many awful people have been saved? Praise God. God brings judgment on them, not because they're awful, but because they will not bow their knee to serve him as God. For the one who, by grace through faith, believes in Jesus, the punishment for sin that is just by God on sinners was the cross of Jesus Christ. We deserve 
judgment. You cannot sin against God and get away with it. Amalek could not live the way they lived and get away with it. They couldn't even attack Israel here and get away with it. I will remove them from memory. God is not unmerciful. God is just. As God judges Amalek, he shows his justice. Romans 3.26 says that God is just. Sin was punished in the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ taking all sin upon himself. And for those who through faith by grace believe in Christ, that punishment is satisfied. God is just. That verse goes on and says that God is just and is the justifier. Why? Because if there was no punishment for sin and God forgave sinners without any punishment, God would prove himself to be unjust. Sin demands punishment. Christ took that punishment so that for those who through faith believe in Jesus Christ, the punishment is taken care of for them. For those who do not through faith believe in the punishment that Jesus Christ bore, judgment still remains. God becomes then just in his action and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This brings me to a moment to simply acknowledge If you have not through faith believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, professed him as Lord, repented of sin, I urge you to call on the name of the Lord today. God is holy. We are sinful. We are separated from a holy God. Our sin separates us from a holy God. The Lord Jesus Christ came, lived as a man, perfectly holy, died under the penalty of sin, perfectly sinless, rose out of the grave, ascended to heaven, is returning again, and there is a response due from every man on the planet, woman, child, before God. Do you believe on this Christ or do you not? I urge you, make that call today. I want to give kind of application as we go along instead of saving it all up for the end and preaching three messages. Amalek is like our enemy, Satan. Pastor, help me. How do I understand Amalek today in this context and tomorrow? Amalek is like our enemy, Satan. Satan does not fear God. Satan is not honorable in his actions. Satan will attack you when you are weary by life, when you are dry and thirsty and in a desert place, he will attack you. How does Amalek help me today, pastor? It helps us to realize that getting from bondage to the promised land was never going to be easy. Moses said to Joshua, verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, here's our second character, New face, a new name. For such a man, he's just brought into this story. Like It's like Moses like, and Joshua. And we don't get a whole lot more until a little later on Joshua. So some quick notes on him. He's a noteworthy and major figure in the redemptive story of God's people. Joshua is not a nonchalant character as he's introduced. Of all the Old Testament figures, think of, just for one minute, think of, all the Old Testament figures that you can think of. Just think of those names. Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Rebecca, Rachel, Sarah, David, Goliath, Daniel, Jonah. Like, right, our mind, if you've been around the Bible for a long time, you're just... Joshua's personal name is used the tenth most out of the entire Old Testament. Out of all the people that you can think of across the Old Testament, Joshua's name actually I think is number nine. I think I wrote my note down wrong. The ninth most used personal name in all of the Old Testament. This Joshua, because there's another one later. This is an important character. He's only behind like David, Solomon, the Lord, Abraham. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses described Joshua as a young man. For, for reference of time, Moses was 40 years in Egypt. He went to the wilderness. He came back. He's 40 years with, uh, in the, he, and I'm sorry, 40 years, he leaves Egypt. He's in the wilderness with Jethro. He's back in Egypt, delivers from, uh, Israel from Egypt, crosses the Red Sea, goes to the mountain. He's 40 years in all of that. Then Israel refuses to obey and go to the promised land, and he's 40 years leading them through the desert before he dies. He's 120 years old. Moses' life is taken in three sections of 40 years. We're in the middle of that second section of 40 years, and he says Joshua is a young man. No idea how old he is. 
younger than Moses, who's not more than 80. Fantastic. Numbers chapter 13, verse 8. He is called Hosea. His father is Nun, pronounced Noon. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. Hosea simply means saves or salvation. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 6, Moses calls Hosea Joshua or Yahashua. Yahashua means the Lord saves. This Hebrew name would be the root word for the Greek name Iesus. Is anybody tracking on this? Students out there, like this is fascinating stuff that we need to pay attention to. Hosea, Yahashua, Iesus, we say Jesus. Yahushua, the Lord saves, the Lord is salvation. Iesus, God saves. This man, Joshua, that you've just met right here, is such a pattern, type, shadow, illustration, picture, whatever you want to call it. This guy is looking forward to Jesus Christ. We never have an account of Joshua sinning. We never have an account of him not obeying. He is the leader of God's people. When Moses died, he leads them into the promised land called the conquest. He leads them in there. This is the man who takes God's people by the hand and leads them through the promised land, defeating all of their enemies and sees them come to rest. He is an absolute picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. After this passage, we won't see him again until Exodus chapter 24, where he is described as Moses' assistant. He is given orders here by Moses. Choose men for us. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. We don't know how many men he chose. We don't know where those men came from. He chooses these men. Go do this. And it says, and he did it. This character of Joshua, this trait, will play out over and over with him. His obedience, his vigilance. He's an alert man. He's not slumbering. He's not nagging. When the people of Israel are looking for water to drink, Joshua's like, let's go this way and trust the Lord. we got to follow Moses. He's supporting the leadership of the people of Israel. He's not antagonizing. We never see him in this role. In Exodus chapter 32, when the sound of music comes up the mountain as the people rebel against the goodness of God in Moses' absence, Joshua says, I hear the sound of war in the camp. He's ready to draw swords, run down the valley, and go to war for his people. He's protecting. He's protective. He's a warrior. He's a leader. He is our second look at what the prototypical king of Israel should have been and never was. We don't know how many men he chose. He chooses them. They go down. Interesting to note in Exodus chapter 13, God did not lead them, it says, Exodus 13, 17. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. For God said, lest the people change their minds and when they see war and return to Egypt. Then in Exodus 13, 18, immediately Moses, you'll remember if you were here at the time, it's been a long time, but if you're here, I called this out specifically. And they went up prepared for war, equipped for war. You can go back and see it. Exodus chapter 13, verse 18. God did not take them the way of war, but God brought them out of Egypt ready to fight. They're armed. They have swords. This isn't doing the best they can do with what they've been given. Here we are in the desert. Let's get whatever sticks and rocks we can. They are prepared, equipped to fight. Interesting to note, they are equipped to fight, but God does not lead them that way. And instead, he leads them through a succession of difficult places to a moment now where they have to fight. I wonder in your life, how much battle are you wanting to have and you're seeing no results as you wage war on the enemy in your life, but you're not equipped to fight? You're weary in the desert without being equipped. Is your faith lacking as the Israelites' faith was lacking? Where are you at in your wilderness journey? How, Pastor, great. How do I apply Joshua to my life tomorrow morning when I go to work? Like Joshua, we have a sword. Ephesians six seventeen says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And when the enemy attacks, we must wield that sword. 
Are you prepared? Joshua is prepared. We meet him, a major character. We meet him, and Moses says, choose men and go out and fight Amalek. And then later in verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Are you prepared to go to battle with the sword when provoked and when sent? We've met Amalek, we've met Joshua. Moses says, choose men. I will stand on top of the hill. Verse 10 tells us that while Joshua fought, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. First, Moses didn't go up on the hill alone. Second, he didn't go empty-handed. So Aaron, we know. For those that maybe have not been with us, Aaron is the brother of Moses. He's the spokesperson to the people. God said, Moses, you'll speak. Aaron will take that and he'll communicate it to the people because Moses said, I, I don't talk well. We met him early in Exodus. He's been with Moses ever since. Who is her? There was not a major motion picture made about this guy back in the early 1900s, first of all. Don't go home and think, I've watched the Ten Commandments for the last year while you preached through this. Now I'll go watch Ben-Hur. Don't do that. That movie has nothing to do with this man, except they share the same name. <clears throat> her, our final new character to meet. Her is a common name in the Bible. Inside the people of Israel and among the nations, there are men in the Bible named Her. Outside of this account, there is not a whole lot to talk about, but he's very important to this story. In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law of God from God, he takes Joshua and he tells the elders of Israel, if somebody's got a problem, you go to Aaron and Her. If there's a dispute to settle, you go to Aaron and Hur. So this leaves us with the understanding that these two men that Moses took with him were trustworthy and dependable for the purpose and cause that Moses was engaged in. He doesn't go alone, Aaron and Hur go with him. He doesn't go empty-handed. Look at the end of verse 9. I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. It's only been called that once before, back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, when Moses leaves the wilderness and returns to Egypt, calls it the staff of God. He packed up his family, loaded up the donkeys, and the Bible says, and he took the staff of God in his hand. That staff is important for us to understand. I've, I've called it to our attention before. I don't want to lose sight of why it's important. It is a symbol of divine judgment and power. It is a symbol of God's authority among the people. It is a picture, a sign, a symbol of the connection between God and his people. The staff of God is an important piece of equipment in the story of Israel coming out of Exodus. He goes up on the mountain, he takes the staff of God with him, that symbol of divine judgment, of divine power, of God's authority, of the connection between God and his people, and he takes Aaron and Hur with him. Pastor, help me. How does Aaron and Hur and Moses and this staff, how do they help me tomorrow to live the Christian life? You can write this down. Like Moses, we must ascend the hill that is Jesus Christ. If you are looking to wage war in this life without ascending the hill of Christ and appealing to God for help as we're about to examine. Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may find grace and mercy in time of need. We must ascend the hill. We cannot go empty-handed. We must have that symbol of divine judgment, of divine power, of God's authority, of God's connection to the people. That is the Lord Jesus Christ for us. I am not saying that Moses' staff is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hear me wrong. But if it symbolizes those things, then we too must have those things in our life. And for us, they're all found through the Lord Jesus Christ. You must ascend the hill as Moses. So the story goes on. It's brief here. 11 through 13, Joshua fought with Amalek while Moses went up on the hill. It's brief. It takes two short verses for him to talk about it. Do you see what happened in verse 13? 
He's weak. How long did this battle go on? Apparently all day, verse 13 says, until the sun went down. Again, no idea how many from Amalek came out. No idea how many men Joshua chose, but we clearly see this battle ebbs and flows not because it's so evenly matched. I'm actually inclined to think that it wasn't. Back and forth, back and forth. Why? When Moses raises his hands with the staff of God toward the heavens, the people of Israel prevail. When he, understandably, right? None of us could stand up here like this for the rest of the time that I speak, let alone something in your hand. When he starts to get weak and his hands start to drop, Amalek starts to prevail. And back and forth and back and forth. What's going on with Moses on that hill? Why is Moses not just praying that the people will just win and it'll be over? Why this back and forth? I think for us to learn some things. That's why, I think. Consider, what's Moses doing up there? Think about his actions. Most notably, think about his posture. Standing. Staff in hand. Symbol of connection to God, the power of God, the authority of God. With what? With his hands raised toward the heavens. If you've been a part of this journey through Exodus, how often have we seen Moses that way in this book? And what happens? And what happens every time Moses takes that posture in this book? What happens? God's power shows up and does something incredible. What else happens in all of those instances that doesn't happen here? God has told Moses when to do it, and he's done it every time. Notice what didn't happen here? God did not say to Moses, go up on the hill, stretch your hands out with that staff to me, and I will. What does Moses do? Moses, write this down in your minds and pay attention to what I'm about to say. Moses draws on all that God has done for him. And without being told to do it, Moses says to Joshua, you get men, go out there and fight, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to stand with my hands held out to God, appealing to him for mercy and help in time of need. I don't know, how often are you struggling in life and not appealing to God for anything? You're just like, at everyone around you and yourself most specifically. Just unhappy, unsatisfied, nothing's working right, and you're doing nothing to appeal to God for help. Oh, Lord, help me. I say for your consideration, he is appealing to God. Moses has engaged God through prayer for help. Nobody in Moses' shoes could stand there all day. He gets weak. There are several things I've wanted you to pay attention to, most notably this one. As he gets weak, during the battle, here comes two people able to support him in his struggle in the middle of the battle. Now wait, wait, before you all think, i got to find somebody to support me. Right, yes you do, and you better be finding someone to support. This is, I'm telling you, this is such a great picture of the Christian life. Moses is up there, and he's got Aaron and her, and Aaron and her are like, man, this ain't good. Every time his hands go down, they start to leave. we got to do something. Says they push a stone. Get the stone up there and sit him down, and then they've got his arms. And can you imagine, like, I can stand for a pretty long time. I can stand a long time. Most of you probably can as well. And they get under him, and now they're holding him up. And you can lock in and keep those arms up there. And now Moses is like, guys, I just got to rest. And he's got nothing. He's just sitting there holding the weight of himself against these guys, and they're holding his arms up. And all of a sudden, Amalek's down in the valley going, wait a minute, we're not winning at all anymore. And his hands aren't going down at all anymore because the power of God is on his people, mercifully helping them as his people appeal to him for help the end. We could all go home right now. Every one of us struggles every day in some way and we never go and appeal to God for help. We just get angry. We just get weary. Maybe you start with your hands up and by the end of the day you're just a pile on the floor and how much differently could it have gone? Brother, sister, help. 
Not only that, Moses doesn't ask for their help. He doesn't ask for their help. They took initiative. Brother, hang on, brother. We got this rock coming, Moses. Just hang on a second. It's coming. We got this rock. And when we get it there, we'll hold your hands up too. And they get to sit down. You rest. We got your arms. We've got you. You appeal to God and we will stand here by you as you call out on God. And we're not leaving till this is decided. I stand. I cannot imagine how incredible our lives would be as Christians if we were and if we had this in our lives. Aaron and her, what do we learn from them? We must be prepared to lift those up around us who are weak, who cannot hold themselves up. This life with Christ is wearying. We're on a journey. Here comes the enemy attacking us from behind. We've got to do something. Joshua says, I got the sword. I'm ready to go. Chooses some men and goes to fight. Moses, I'll go pray. Aaron and her will go with you. He's getting weak. Let's help him. So now what happens? Somebody's appealing to God for help on the mountain, held up by two close, trustworthy people of God. And Joshua's down in the valley, literally hacking his way with a sword against the enemy. And we sit down and say, I wish I had help. I can't anymore. Because nobody is prepared to fight for one another. And because nobody is prepared to recognize a weaker brother and help them. Because nobody makes any type of arrangements for another person to come alongside and help them be comfortable in their fight to the best of their ability and support them as they do so. Imagine, just imagine your life with Jesus. If you had a Joshua and an Aaron and a Hur and a Moses around you. See yourself in every one of them, please. Find yourself in every one of them. Joshua doing work in the valley. Moses praying on the hill. Aaron and her holding him up. I don't think I'm Moses. I don't think I'm Joshua, but I think I can be her. Good, good. Because somebody out there needs you helping them. I don't think I can help hold up any arms, but I can pray. Good, you're going to need someone to hold you up while you pray. I don't think I can take the sword and go down into the valley. That's okay. Someone else will take the sword and go to fight. That is, good heavens, such a picture of the Christian life. So what happens? Moses' arms are steadied. And look at verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Not Israel. Not the people. Joshua overwhelms. Back in verse 10. So Joshua did this. Joshua went out. Why not the people? Joshua is now leading the people in this fight. The Lord saves. Not the people. The Lord saves. The victory won. They build an altar. What's the first thing they do? They worship. That says that here. When you read that, Moses built an altar immediately, and they worshiped. Moses called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. They worship. I love what's said in verse 14. God says to Moses, Write this as a memorial. Write it in a book, and look at this, and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Pastor, can you help me? Is there significance there? Yeah. Do you know what? Not only did God decree that day to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, God made sure that Joshua knew he didn't do it. You didn't do it, Joshua. Look what I did. I will. I will. I, the Lord, I will. Joshua's going to be used to, in part, subdue some of the Amalekites. God did it. I will. I did it. Recite these words in the hearing. Look at it says, in the ears of. Don't think you did something, Joshua. Don't think you're great, Joshua. Don't let the people worship you, Joshua. I did it, Joshua. Remember the Lord. And we have this in him. His character shows us that this is the character of Joshua. This memorial here is for ancient Israel and their day, but it extends to all of God's people. And I want to show you briefly with one statement how this promise about the Amalekites to the Israelites means something to us now as God's people. Do you know what one of the greatest warnings is throughout all of the Bible? 
The wicked will perish. God is telling the Israelites that the wicked will perish. And all throughout the Bible, God's people are told, though it endures on the earth, though it persists, the wicked will come under judgment. Our brother read Psalm 95 this morning. God's promises to his people are great and vast. But God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love is not going to simply tolerate sin. There will be judgment on wickedness. Pastor, can you summarize it for me? I think I follow. Can you give me a summary? I sure can. Amalek is like our enemy now. The promised land, getting there, was never going to be easy. We're going to face challenges every step of the way. I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm fighting over and over and over, all the way until God gives us rest. Moses reminds us to appeal to God for God's help, to intercede also for God's help in the lives of those around us. Aaron and her remind us to encourage and strengthen those around us when they are weak and in the fight. And Joshua reminds us that when the enemy attacks, we must wield the sword. I wrote this down in closing. Every one of us must be every one of these for everyone around us. I'm talking certainly of those within the context of the household of God, Christians. Every one of us must be at least prepared to be every one of these for everyone around us. At times, you may not be able to be any one of these. You might be the rest of Israel. Remember when I mentioned them? Where are they at? Only some of the men went out to fight. Only Joshua, Moses, Aaron, and Hur were engaged in the fight. Where are the rest of the people? I think they are paralyzed by fear, by their exhaustion, not knowing what to do, bystanders to the whole thing. Let's not be that. Let's not just stand around. Let us be and have people around us that intercede for us, that encourage us, that wield the sword for us. May we be a people, when we come to the end of this life, may it have been said of us, they lived with a hand upon the throne of God. Father, I come to you on behalf of all gathered here, myself and all those here, Father. Help us, God, to be strong for one another. Help us, Father, to be vigilant in prayer for one another. Help us, our Lord, to wield the sword on behalf of those around us. Father, find us skillful in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to wield the sword. Father, may we, for all these examples that we see, Father, may we be them to those around us and may we live our God and our King, our source of hope and power and peace. May we live with a hand upon your throne, finding mercy and grace in time of need. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.